Before I get to the sermon, I'd like to just give you a little further introduction to let you know that uh, Debbie and I are locals. Uh, we're both from Cory. And if you know anything about Cory, if you're going to go on a date, you might have gone to Chautauqua Lake up in, uh, up in New York, but if you, if you wanted better choices of restaurants and all, you, you come to Erie. And then uh, I, I did my first two years of college at Barron, so um, spent time there. And Debbie and I both have one of our degrees from Edinburgh State College. It's now a university. That just ages us a little bit. So uh, we are locals. Uh, in ministry, I started at my home church for a year. Then we went to seminary out in St. Paul, Minnesota. And while there, I was able to serve with Palmer Zerbe under, under him at a church there. He later came to Pennsylvania and was our district superintendent for several years. Then we came to Pennsylvania after seminary to Nadine Alliance Church in a corner of Penn Hills. At the same time, it's when I was commissioned in the Naval Reserve as a chaplain. We went from there to Conway, Pennsylvania, and pastored the church there. And after Conway went on active duty, I served with the Naval Mobile Construction Battalion out of Gulfport, Mississippi, with the Marine Corps Air Station in Beaufort, South Carolina, the USS Guam out of Norfolk, a helicopter carrier, and uh, a desk job in the Bureau of Naval Personnel when it was in <clears throat> D.C., um, following that. And then we felt the Lord leading us back to church ministry, and we came to Oil City, and I continued in the reserve. I was mobilized from Oil City and uh, spent 2004 uh, mobilized and eight months of that in Iraq, and then uh, retired from the Navy in 2006. It's the same year we went to Bell Vernon, where we were able to pastor for 12 years. And the Lord let us uh, build a new building and relocate and saw many come to the Lord. It was just a wonderful time in ministry. We have two sons. One's a pastor in Minnesota. He and his wife, uh, he married a, an Oil City girl. And uh, they have two sons. And our other son um, is uh, married and lives in Dayton, Ohio, working with the Salvation Army there. So kind of who we are. Just to let you know more of how local we are, I understand some of the eerie dynamics. Um, when we were in Oil City, I got to coach on the wrestling team for the high school. And uh, at regionals, we had a wrestler who had been beaten by the prep guy twice, who pinned him at regionals. And it was at least a half hour later um, we were going up in the stands, and the Oil City folks were sitting a little higher than the Mc, any McDowell people here. <laughs> we, they, they were, we were sitting up a little bit higher, and it was a whole half hour later. And as we came by, they were just high-fiving us. We were having great celebration um, because we beat the prep guy. So, <laughs> so I, I understand some of that. And any of you that are prep graduates, I apologize. Um, for pointing that out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are, for the great salvation you provided for us. And Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that you would touch us. Help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to have his heart. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Sermon title this morning is An Outward Focused Life to Win Some. As we think of the church, and there's, there's application for this for our own lives as well, um, I've heard it put that there's kind of four pillars of what we do as a church. One of them's worship, and we're worshiping now. And most of us understand, I think, that worship is far greater than just a worship service. All of life is to be worship. Everything we do, whether we're at work or play or at home, we're supposed to be doing it all for the glory of the Lord, all proclaiming His worth, worshiping the Lord with our lives. And of course, we come together for a very special reason, to worship Jesus together. So one of the pillars of the church is worship. Another is edification or Bible study. And our own personal devotions, we spend time in the Word, letting the Lord touch us with it, teach us in it, we meditate on it. And then we also need those times we come together with groups of people to study His Word. Iron sharpens iron, and it helps us to understand it better and to apply it more in our lives. So you have worship and edification. There's also fellowship. And fellowship's more than just celebrating a victory over any high school. Um, Fellowship in the Christian sense is when we start to talk about Jesus, when we start to bear one another's burdens, when we rejoice with those who rejoice and, and, and we weep with those who weep. So fellowship is a needed thing. We need each other as Christians. So we have worship and edification or Bible study and fellowship, but there's also outreach and evangelism. And I would ask us, which of those four things will we not do after Jesus comes back? And I hope you know the answer. It's outreach, evangelism. The reason that the church is on earth today is to seek and save the lost. In fact, Jesus, when he came, he he says time and again that his purpose was to do the will of the Father. And that's, that's consistent through his whole ministry right up until the Garden of Gethsemane where he asked the Lord if he could take that cup from him. But not my will, but your will be done. So he came to do the will of the Father. And then he states his mission very clearly. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So as we think of that, the whole Bible <clears throat> is a missionary book. I wish we had time to go into the Old Testament and really point this out, but it really comes to to the forefront with Abraham and God's covenant with him, where God promises that through Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in many of the passages of the Old Testament, when you come across words like nations, peoples, islands, coastlands, it's referring to those who are not Jewish and how God wants to reach them through the Jewish people. The Jewish people are invited first, but then all of us who are not Jewish are invited to partake of God's salvation as well. So the Old Testament sets all of this up, and then Jesus throughout his ministry just makes it so clear that outreach is what we're to be about. What does he say to his disciples when he first calls them? Jesus said to them, follow me 
and I will make you become fishers of men. So right from the first time he's calling anybody to come with him, he's saying, you have a purpose. You have something I want you to do, and it's to fish for men. Jesus reiterates this on a number of occasions. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then many of us can quote the Great Commission or at least tell what the major parts are. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage is really important. We are to be making disciples. That is the mission of the church. That's why the Lord has us here. Scripture tells us very clearly that God is patient. He's waiting so that more and more people can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and and be a part of his kingdom. And so he tells us to go, to make disciples. Well, today we're only going to make disciples if we go. There was a period of time, kind of from the time A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Alliance, was, was ministering, through about World War II, that if you had a good singer and a good preacher, you could just invite non-Christians and they would come to churches or theaters or wherever it was, and they would hear the gospel and, and respond. Our society has changed. No longer will they, will they come. 80% of Erie is not in church today. And there's a great number of them. If you invited them, not knowing them well, they probably won't come. So we need to go to make disciples. We need to go to them. And we're to baptize them when they come to faith. We're to teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. But that great commission comes in one of those sandwich things. It's got a beginning and an end. We're to do this stuff in the middle, but what does it say at the beginning? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. That word authority means authority or power. If a policeman's standing in the road and he goes like this, he has the authority to stop your vehicle. He doesn't have the power to stop your vehicle. Now, if he has a jersey barrier behind him, there's the power to stop the vehicle. Jesus has both power and authority. And so when Jesus is giving the Great Commission, he's saying, I have the authority to send you, but I also have the power to send you that you'd be effective. And you're going to make disciples. You're going to baptize them. You're going to teach them to obey. And I'm going to be with you through thick and thin. I'm going to be there all of the time. He says it a little differently in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We don't go alone. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're to be witnesses. And it doesn't say you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or the ends of the earth. 
He wants us to be his witnesses in all of it. So Jerusalem would be, for us here today, Erie. He wants you to be witnesses in Erie. Then Judea would be this, the, the, the area surrounding the, the, the larger region. And there are ministries and, and needs that God may be calling First Alliance Church to, to reach and meet out beyond the city limits, so to speak. And then there's Samaria, ministry to those who aren't like us, that cross-cultural ministry. Um, just over in Cleveland, there's ministry that's going on right now through Envision with refugees from other countries. And Samaria isn't just people that are cross-cultural for us. It, it, Jesus really pushes the envelope with Samaritans. They were hated. There are people that weren't liked at all. And Jesus says, you're going to go to the Samaritans. You're going to go to those that, that you don't like. And the Bible has many examples of that. This is just a sidebar for your afternoon reading. Check out Jonah again. Maybe you've never seen it since Sunday school as a kid. Jonah did not run from God because he was afraid. He ran from God because he didn't want God to forgive the Assyrians. We have a God who wants to reach everybody, including the Samaritans of our lives as well. And then we're to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. All in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do it ourselves. But God has us here for a purpose. And yes, we continue to worship. You're doing what you should do this morning. We should worship. And we should study the Word of God. And we should have fellowship together. But our priority must be reaching the lost. One of A.B. Simpson's favorite verses that deal with reaching the lost is found in Matthew 24, 14. It was, it was being said around with journalists and all back then that Simpson claimed to know when Jesus would, would, would return. Of course, we, we've heard some of those people. You know, you go up on a mountain and you wait for a specific date. So the journalist came to Simpson and said, do you know when Jesus is going to return? And Simpson said, yes. And he says, when? And he says, I'll tell you if you'll print every word that I say. And the guy promised. And Simpson quoted this verse. And this gospel of the kingdom will be, be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. God has us in his place, in his time to reach the lost. And that has to be our number one priority. Before I go to the next part of that, I'd like to do a little informal survey, and you're allowed to look around, okay? Of all of us who proclaim to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, how many have been saved by watching a TV show or a radio sermon? How many of you came to Christ in that way? Raise your hand. Will you? We have one back here. Anybody else? I'm glad we have one. Thank you. Um, 
Some people do get saved by seeing it on TV. My mom's uncle was an alcoholic. He was in a bar. Billy Graham came on the TV. He was listening to it, and somebody in the bar said, change the channel, and they did. He got mad, went home, and watched the rest of the sermon and got saved, wonderfully saved. Sometimes people come to Christ through television and radio. How many of you were saved by either reading or picking up a tract or a book? Any of you? I don't see anybody. We had somebody in the first service. Praise the Lord. Sometimes he uses printed material and somebody will come to know Christ. One of my elders in my last church came to know the Lord by reading a tract. Somebody had given it to him. He went home. He read it. Made sense to him, and he came to Christ. How many of you came to know Jesus because somebody either brought you to church or sat and explained the gospel to you? Now, I hope that gets my point across. We need to go and be witnesses. Now, not all of us have the gift of evangelism. You know the the person with the gift of evangelism. You've heard their testimony, but maybe you've run into them. You go to Wegmans. You're in the aisle, and the frozen peas are here, the frozen carrots are here. And they turn to the person who's there in that aisle with them, and they say, how are you today? And that person just pours out their whole life to them. And they witness the, the gospel of Christ to them, and they pray and receive the Lord right there. And some of you may have that gift. Praise the Lord. We need people with the gift of evangelism. My personality, I'll guarantee if I tried to force some conversation with somebody at the Frozen Peas, they'd think I was some really weird guy, and they'd run like mad. My witnessing has had to be different. My witnessing has had to be getting to know somebody so that they trust me, so that they kind of understand. I'm a task-oriented person, and usually when somebody interrupts me, I think it's an interruption instead of a divine appointment. And I'm kind of thick. You can ask Debbie. It takes me a while to pick up on subtle things. Now and then it works. And then I get to to befriend somebody and witness to them. And that's the way a lot of us have to do our witness, isn't it? People don't just flock to us to know Christ. Some do. Praise the Lord. If you have those gifts, hang on to them and use them. But the rest of us have a responsibility to be a witness, to lift up Christ, to proclaim his death until he comes. So I want to look at a passage of scripture that kind of Paul lays out what his method was. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll begin at verse 19. And this first part of it is written as a Hebrew poem. And Hebrew poems aren't rhymes like in English a lot of our poems rhyme. And it's not dependent on the meter. It's not how um, sing-songy it gets. It's parallelism. And the different parallels in an Hebrew poem or a Jewish poem add more meaning to the idea. So as you go down through here, the the part that's that's to come out is to win, to win, to win, to save. Okay? 
For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To the outside, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So let's think about this poem, to win some, to save some. Paul's goal is to win people to Jesus Christ, as many as possible. So, though he's free from the law now, and we're talking about the ceremonial law, the Old Testament law. Why did God, you know, why is Leviticus and some of those passages so hard to read? Because God is laying out his instructions on how someone can come into the presence and worship the holy God. It's very exacting. There are specific sacrifices that need to be made. There are offerings that need to be made. Even the clothing that the priests wear has to be consecrated in certain ways so that they can come before the holy God and worship him in an acceptable way. The Apostle Paul knows that Jesus has taken care of all that. The book of Hebrews helps us understand it. Jesus has been as as completely fulfilled every sacrifice that the Old Testament asked for. Jesus is that sacrifice for us. Every offering that had to be offered in the tabernacle or the temple, Jesus is that offering for us. Every aspect of consecration and 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 all of those things that were so necessary the ceremonial washings all of those jesus met those and makes it possible for us to be in the presence of of the holy god and he demonstrated that so clearly when the the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies ripped from top to bottom we now have the ability to go in before Jesus in the presence of his holiness because he met all of those things that the ceremonial law required. So Paul is not saying that we don't have to follow the moral law of God. That's still intact. You know, the Ten Commandments, those kind of things. He's saying, I am free from the ceremonial law of God. And I'm not depending on my keeping even the moral law as holding on to it as what would save me. Praise the Lord. We're not saved by keeping the moral law of God. Are we supposed to keep it? Oh, yeah. But that's not how we're saved. We're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we're all lawbreakers. So we're saved through Christ. Paul understands all of this. So in this poem, he's trying to make his point that to the Jew I become a Jew. Now he's already a Jew. 
And you'll notice that he doesn't say, I become a Greek or I become a Gentile. He's honest in this. He stays as a, as a Jew. But he says, to the Jew, I, I become a Jew so that I can, can witness to them. To those who are outside of the law. To those who are not dependent on the law. I live as one who's not dependent on the law. When, when Paul was with non-Christians... Or, or even with Christians, but Gentile Christians. You remember Jews didn't eat with Gentiles in Old Testament days. Now as Christians, they could eat together. Paul ate with the Gentile Christians. Peter came. Do you remember that occasion? And until the Judaizers from Jerusalem came, Peter had been eating with them. And when the guys from Jerusalem showed up, he separated himself. He wouldn't eat with them. And Paul points out the hypocrisy of Peter in that case. So Paul says, to those who are outside of the law, I minister as one who's outside of the law. To those who are in the law, and he's talking about the ceremonial law, I become one who's in the law. When Paul went to Jerusalem and was going to go into the temple, he made sure that he was ceremonially clean so that he wouldn't offend the people at the temple. He knew that those things no longer had mastery over him and that his salvation wasn't dependent on them, but he made sure that he was ceremonial clean to the, to the extent he was going to take young Jewish Timothy, who had not been circumcised, and if you study the New Testament, Paul makes it very clear circumcision has nothing to do with our salvation. It has no power at all. But he did have Timothy get circumcised so that when they went into the temple together, it would not offend those who were under the law. So Paul's saying to those who are under the law, I become under the law so that I might reach them. To the Jew, I become a Jew. To those who are free from the law, I become free from the law. To those who are... Um, weak, I become weak. We could go into that in depth, but Paul's rationale, the how, he's doing all of this. So as we explain this further, to those under the law, we looked at that. To those outside the law, we looked at that. So what is the reason for this goal? He becomes a servant to win more. A Jew to Jews, outside the ceremonial law, freedom, to win outsiders, to the weak, to, the, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So how do we summarize this? I don't know who said this, but I agree wholeheartedly with it. This person said, I'll do anything short of sin to win people for Jesus. I'll do anything short of sin to win people for Jesus. If you think about the implications of that, it means that I'm willing to be stretched. I'm willing to be in situations that are very uncomfortable in order to win people for Jesus. 
whether it's applied to our family, our school situation, our work, our play, our general culture. When I went into the Navy, I needed, needed to decide, am I going to be a part of the whole wardroom, the, the gathering of offers, officers in their social, social settings? Giving myself some tongue twisters here. Or am I going to be separate and not, not take part in those? Well, to, to minister effectively, I needed to be a part of that. My mom was raised by an abusive al- alcoholic. And I had made commitments to her early in life that I wouldn't drink. And so in many of those situations, I was the only non-drinker. And so that, that has an element of discomfort. But I, w- I would be around them, and I was fine. They were my friends. Um, but if they started to get a little, a little drunk, I'd, I'd usually slip off to my room. On one occasion, they had invited, had invited some girls to come to this dinner and, and after. And my commanding officer, who was a moral man, came to me and he said, Chaplain, you won't leave the party until the girls are gone. I don't want my junior officers getting in trouble. So there I was having to be stretched to be around all of this. Praise the Lord, they left and none of, the, none of the young guys got in trouble. But we need to be willing to be stretched. We need to be willing to do things that are uncomfortable for us. I know in my earlier days I worked construction and one time as a seminarian I was on a job and they knew I was a seminarian and there was one other Christian uh, that was on the job site and he was one of those Christians that tried to witness by pointing out everything wrong any, anybody did in their life. He'd point out their, their lifestyle, their language, all of those things. He was in their face about it. And after I'd worked there for some time, some of them would come kind of one-on-one and just say, you know, so-and-so says he's a Christian. I said, yeah, he professes to know, to know the Lord. And he said, you, you are a Christian? And I said, yeah, I am. What's the difference between you and, you know, you're not the same. And praise the Lord, it opened up a chance without throwing that guy under the bus to talk about Jesus. And so often we can get our witness out of whack so that we're emphasizing the wrong thing. And we need to be pointing people to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the importance of them coming to know him and following him. So how are you trying to get to know non-Christians in your life? When my boys were young, it was really easy. We were in in bleachers or, or stadium seats with other parents. Somehow I always seemed to attract a profane dad that yelled too much and you wondered if you'd get in a fight before you got out of there. But why do you sit there and why do you try to witness to those people? Because they need Jesus. And you try to, to share the gospel of Christ with them. I know since, since they graduated from school, I have to work at it. I have unsaved neighbors that we're working at. But like a lot of Christians, so much of our time is spent with church people. Are we seeking out the lost? Are we finding ways to go to them, to get to know them, to spend time with them so that they might trust us and come to know the Lord? We need to be intentionally outward focused. And that passage in 1 Corinthians 9 continues, and I'll read it. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says he's a partner of the the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I do it so that I won't be disqualified Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What does Paul mean, disqualified? He's not talking about, will I go to heaven or will I be rejected and not go to heaven? That's not what he's talking about. Um, in, In the Corinthians, both books, Paul explains some of this in a little bit more detail. He says, we are all going to face a type of judgment that's not... Are you in Christ or not? I mean, we will face that judgment too. Is our name in the Lamb's book of life? But we're all going to face a judgment that our deeds will pass through the fire. And in one place he he says, is it wood, hay, or stubble? Or is it gold, silver, and costly gems? The things that we've done for eternity will make it through the fire and still be wonderful things. The things we've done for ourselves or that we haven't done in in a way pleasing to the Lord will burn. In 2 Corinthians 5, an evangelistic passage, Paul makes it very clear. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ And then the very next thing he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And then a few verses later, he says, for the love of Christ compels us. He had two motives for his witness. The realization he was going to stand before Jesus and give an account of what he had done. And Paul wanted to run the race in such a way that like a runner or a boxer, that he wasn't wasting his time that he wasn't just beating the air, that he was doing something that would touch lives for eternity. So what gets in our way of sharing the gospel? Well, I have to admit, for me personally, have, we let our, have I let my love for my neighbor wane? We all profess to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's so easy to let that slide and not realize that that neighbor is destined for hell if somebody doesn't intervene. And the Lord has put us there to be one of those to intervene. Another thing that gets in the way is we get so busy. We have so many commitments in our lives that we don't have time to stop and, and actually get to know a non-Christian. And those that study society right now have pointed out that the non-Christian 
needs to really know that you like them for who they are, not just as a target to accept Christ. And they need to know you long enough to trust you enough to share with them. It's tough and sometimes messy. Another thing that gets in our way, and don't burn me as soon as I say this, but too many Bible studies. We Christians are so involved in our churches that we don't give ourselves any time to get out and reach the lost. Now, I'm not criticizing Bible study at all. We need them. But if you have so many things in your life that are church-centric, you need to give something up so that you have time to know the lost. And then some of us may just struggle not believing that people are really lost and destined for hell. You need a Bible study because the Bible's pretty clear. The lost are lost. So let's run in order to obtain the prize. Let's not box aimlessly. Let's box with, an, with intent. I'd like to share just how the church I pastored dealt with this. We built a new church. We knew that a lot of people would show up, especially some Christians. And sometimes Christians that show up have their own agenda. And so we knew what God was calling us to do. And so how were we going to deal with this? And we had, we had determined as a church to become intentionally outward focused. So we use the target. The outer ring of the target is us. Well, if we're aiming our ministry at us, that's not really where it needs to go. The next ring are the Christians, Christian people that would show up. And we weren't aiming our ministry at them. Sometimes God does lead someone from one church to another. And if they came and, and shared the vision that we had for reaching the lost, we welcomed them and they came along with us. But if they were coming looking for some other church, we actually got a letter once. We had a lot of children, praise the Lord. And the letter said, we can tell that this isn't our church. You emphasize children's ministry too much. We were glad they didn't come back. That one blew my mind. The next to the middle, we called the religious lost. There's a lot of people in your neighborhood who have been involved in church, maybe even know the Lord, who have fallen out of church. And I don't care what church they fell out of. We need to reach them and get them back into fellowship. The same is true for a lot of churches that aren't preaching the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. They're fair game. But the main thing is the lost. So who's the lost? Well, your children are, so please don't lose them. They're born sinners, in case you didn't know that. They need to come to Christ. But then that 80% of Erie that's not here today or in any church today. They're the lost. They need to be reached. When you talk about being outward focused, some people will say, well, does that mean we're going to neglect 
our own people. I like to use the illustration of marriage and children to to point out, no, we're not talking about neglecting our, our own but there's priorities. In a marriage, hopefully, hopefully all of you understand, the marriage relationship is the primary relationship in your family. And you need to teach your children that. So as soon as our boys were old enough to kind of understand, we would actually tell them, Mom and Dad are going out, and we're not taking you. And we're going to have fun without you. And we wanted them to know our relationship was different than our relationship with them. Now, we love our sons very much. If one of them was sick, we took care of them. And we each need to be aware of those things in our own lives that we understand. Reaching the lost is why Jesus has us here. We're going to worship the Lord through eternity, praise the Lord. And we need to worship the Lord now. We're going to learn from the Word Himself through eternity. So we'll be learning His Word. And we're going to have face-to-face fellowship with Jesus and face-to-face fellowship with each other that's not tarred with sin. I can't even imagine what that's like, can you? But He has us here right now, and He's being patient, waiting to come back because there are lost people He wants found. Will we be those who will live our lives to win more and receive an eternal crown? May we each hear from Jesus, well done, my good and faithful servant. We're going to pray. And custom here is to receive an offering after that. This is part of our spiritual worship. And I would uh, add, if you're a visitor here, don't feel pressured to give. This is, this is the way Christian people give back to God from what he's given to them. And we'll trust the Lord to, to bless those. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you through giving. And we do pray that you would bless the gift and bless each giver. And Lord, meet the needs of this church so that it can be more effective in reaching people for you. And Lord, for each of us in our own lives, we pray that you would give us a fresh burden for the lost. Give us a fresh view that we do not go alone, but you give us your Holy Spirit to empower our witness. You go before us. You give us the words to speak. And you continue to minister when we've gone. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.